one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the talking space podcast this is episode 511 for no fooling the week of monday april 1st 2013 i'm sawyer rosenstein and joining me tonight is gene mccalka welcome gene hey sawyer uh kind of sort of sound like i should be doing a uh, a jazz radio station here here tonight but uh we'll we'll muddle through and get through this but there's a there's a lot of talking there's a heck of a lot to talk about here this is 511, your Talking Space Jazz headquarters. I can see that pulling off. You may want to look at that as another career. Also joining us tonight is Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Sawyer. Good to be here. I think this will be a fun one. I think so, too. And it doesn't have to have any tricks in it for it to be fun, because in the United States today is indeed April Fool's Day. So we'll try not to fool you too much. And to prove that, we're going to get straight into our first story which involves something that happened last week, which we were discussing, and it was last Thursday, in fact, March 28th, 2013. And that was the launch of the Soyuz TMA-08M, which lifted off the early morning sky of Kazakhstan, or the early af- or the late afternoon time, if you're in the United States, as the Soyuz launched from Kazakhstan at 4.43 p.m. Eastern Time, which was 2.43 a.m. local time the following day. What was different about this mission carrying three new crew members to the International Space Station was its orbital plane, basically how it launched. And instead of spending two days, as we talked about last episode... They went directly to the International Space Station, and less than six hours later, at 10.28 p.m. Eastern Time, about five hours, 45 minutes later to be exact, the two spacecraft were docked just over the Pacific Ocean, and about an hour later, they were together and celebrating their time aboard the space station as the new Expedition 35 crew. So this seemed to work pretty well, even though they were in their spacesuits for 11 hours and awake for over... 21 hours yeah that's one of the downsides sawyer of uh of this new uh of this new regime that they're trying here uh it's a very long day for the crew in fact if anybody was watching nasa television during the time of uh of uh yeah, of the hatch opening at least when they were trying to get the hatch open um there were a lot of yawns coming out of the uh the speakers there, you can hear the crew kind of going, mm, you know, a little bit. And I, I don't know where the yawns were coming from. They were probably coming b- from both sides of the uh, 
of the hatch, actually. I had a little issue trying to get the hatch open. Uh, hatch opening was initially scheduled for about uh, 12, 10 Eastern, Eastern Daylight Time. It happened at about 12.35 Eastern Daylight Time due to a little bit of a pressurization problem. They were trying to get the pressure, pressurized uh, environment equalized on both sides of the uh, both sides of the hatch, and it just—I um, believe the—it uh, just was not cooperating. They finally went ahead and, and got that problem licked, and uh, and of course uh, got the hatches uh, opened. Um, the usual greetings with uh, the family, saying congratulations, and a lot of the uh, both the uh, Roscosmos uh, dignitaries, and of course uh, the NASA guys, going, "Hey, congratulations!" and and then, uh, of course, the uh, the customary uh, safety briefing, and and then uh, maybe a little nibble to eat, and then finally off to bed because again, it had been an extraordinarily long day. The the plus side that this really gives you, though, is um, is from a Soyuz standpoint, and I believe the Soyuz, somebody's going to have to check me on this, but I believe the Soyuz can only operate um, autonomously for about four days. Uh, while while in this in, while while getting to the ISS, so in this new uh, this new way of doing things, it actually buys them a lot of time on the Soyuz or a lot of you know lifetime on the Soyuz um, to get over to uh, to the ISS. Should there be a, a a problem going forward, at least now you've got some uh, some breathing room here. You know you've got a, you've got some uh, some uh, consumables to play with as far as the Soyuz is concerned. So it gives you a little time there. It also gives you a little bit more time too if you want to, if you're sending up some perishable items on board the Soyuz, you can still get them there rather quickly. So it, again, it opens up the the door for some science to get done. Um, and of course, from I guess from a, a creature comfort standpoint too, I, we had this debate on uh, online when I was talking to some folks on Twitter uh, that uh, uh, yeah, the Soyuz is not exactly the most uh, uh, roomy spacecraft in the world. Uh, you could go ahead and actually see uh, from a lot of the onboard pictures if you were watching the Soyuz launch that it's um, it's rather cozy in that that vehicle and. Uh, I don't know about about, about you. It's it, it's but it's kind of like spending um, uh, putting three people in the back of a of a of a uh, well the, a Saturn Ion because if you've ever had which I own, uh, which is just darn near you know, impo- you know which is almost darn near impossible, but we managed to pull that off. Um, but it, it's it's not the most comfortable environment in the world, and if you want to go ahead and reduce that time back there. Um, you can, and and this is a good way of of, of doing that. Um, and five hours, forty five minutes from uh, from uh, docking, from from launch to docking, not bad. Uh, but again, uh, this opens a lot of doors for science. This opens a lot of other doors for logistics purposes and so on. But again, the real heavy trade off in this is that the crew is just absolutely dog tired when they arrive at the ISS. So it's pretty much the safety brief briefing and lights out when you get back over there. Yeah, which uh, one of the three members on board, uh Chris Cassidy, the US astronaut, he put it out in a very interesting way and this is from Space Flight Now. Um he said, quote, when you lay out the timeline for those four orbits, there are certain key activities that need to happen, basically burns that need to occur on time to get you to rendezvous. The way it works out, 
There's about 30 to 40 minutes between each of these major activities. That's enough time for one guy or two to float up, basically use the restroom. And that's what it boils down to, kind of stretch your legs and pee, unquote. So they still got a little bit of a break. They got to kind of get out of their suits for a little bit, you know, take little 30-minute breaks. And it, it didn't seem as terrible as we originally figured it to be, but I, I still would not want to be in my spacesuit for 11 hours, awake for 21, and inside is so used for six. Well, yeah, again, that's 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 the trade-off. Um, also, too, getting yourself acclimated to the space environment, if you're a newbie, it, it could also pose some interesting problems, too, I guess. Uh, where you're, you may be combating, you know, a, a, a bout of space sickness, um, just as you're you're docking. So, um, you which, know, it, go ahead. Which there was one new guy on board talking about. I should mention the crew. The Soyuz commander for TMA08M was um, Pavel Vinogradov, flight engineer, who's the new guy, Alexander Masurkin, and shuttle vet Chris Cassidy. Yeah. So. Um, uh, those, you know, again, if it, it doesn't give you a lot, it doesn't allow you a lot of time to get, you know, your, your space legs if, as you will. But, um, from what I'm understanding, at least during the post docking press conference, it sounded to me like if they were going to try this again at, at, uh, at another for the next launch, and if things continue to go well, this may actually be. Uh, the adopted norm for for uh, for ISS in the future. So get used to it, guys. Well, the future will tell us uh, how well it worked because you know NASA's focus is is very tight on safety, and if they feel like there's any uh, additional risks that that are being taken because of the tight timeline and the number of hours uh, awake and on duty. You know they'll probably uh, vote to to go back to the old way or to find some modification that's a, a mix between the two. And of course, I have no idea, not being a rocket scientist, how the orbits would work out if they could even do that. Uh, I have a feeling um, when there's a will, there's a way, and mathematically, you'll you'll kind of sort of try to find that 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 happy medium mark, but. Uh, uh, you're absolutely right. I think maybe that, uh, you know, it may take something like that to happen, though. It might take a little bit about of, uh, you know, somebody uh, getting a little bit, uh, you know, space sick or something like that to kind of rethink it. But uh, um, I think what they may try to do is, is is save this in their back pocket for in their bag of tricks should they need to go ahead and have a um, – if they have a piece of cargo on board Soyuz, for instance, or an experiment on board Soyuz that, uh, well, is time-sensitive and needs to get over to the ISS quickly. So at least you have have something in your back pocket where you can go ahead and pull this plan out and say, hey, is about you know seven hours enough for you? And, and if the scientists say, yeah, that, would, that should do it, then – you know, we are, you're in good shape for, for this particular experiment to arrive. I, I think it's interesting. You know, obviously the less time they have to spend, the less time they have to spend in that lovely, spacious sarcasm intended Soyuz, you know, <laughs> the better. But, you know, what, <laughs> I think it's an interesting technique. And obviously I, I, one success is hopefully proof that it can happen again and again and become standard. I'm, I'm hoping for it at this point. 
And just as a note, Expedition 35, which has now begun on board the International Space Station, also includes the current members who were already on board, which includes new commander of the station and Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield, NASA astronaut Tom Marshburn, as well as Russian astronaut, as well as Russian cosmonaut Roman Romanenko. And they have a very busy couple of months coming up with, uh, I believe there's a possibility of seven spacewalks on board the space station, as well as a bunch of unmanned space vehicles being scheduled to make a visit soon. If I recall exactly, the Expedition 35, according to NASA PAO, will also be uh, playing host to about 200 experiments with about 400 scientists on the ground kind of sort of marshalling these things along. So, uh, again, the uh, the crew will be extraordinarily busy, and if anybody wants to find out what's going on on board their space station, uh, visit www.nasa.gov forward slash station, and uh, that should go ahead and fill you in on what's going on. Indeed, and I should add a funny note from when they had docked. As they were talking about it, uh, someone described it as a record-breaking docking and rendezvous, and someone else said, well, not really, because it's all been planned. A little humor through it all, and congratulations to the new Expedition 35 crew. All right, now, you mentioned that there's about 400 experiments that they'll be doing on board, and Mark has some interesting information about one of them, right? Yes, I got something that I think is kind of interesting. I remember hearing about this from uh, one of our interviews that we had with Tara Rutley, and the instrument that she told us about is ISERVE, and ISERVE is the course stands for International Space Station and SERVIR which stand which in Spanish means to serve but this is environmental research and visualization system it's based on a commercially available um, device with a camera attached and Gene I think you mentioned you actually recognized it and this is a uh, telescope That's right exactly right it's an off the shelf what looks like an off the shelf Celestron 8 um, that uh, I have upstairs in 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 my little little it's it's the telescope I use to do my little you know uh, my own astronomical observations at times and it's it, I'm looking at the the website mark that she gave us uh, uh, during pre-show and it is quite an amazing device and it's quite an amazing use of off-the-shelf technology I have to admit it it really really looks elegant. Yeah. Well, ISERV has been mounted in the Destiny module in the WARF, which is the Window Observational Research Facility. And in place, it can be remotely targeted by the ground. They can find um, things that perhaps there's been a natural disaster. And uh, a country wants to know what's happened downstream. Maybe they've had a dam break. What's happened downstream? Has there been flooding? Have there been bridges washed out? They get a resolution down to 10 feet so they could see something the size of a car and get good resolution at it. Uh, this is controlled by Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama. The potential is yet to be seen. This has just become operational. Their first light image shows the mouth of the Rio San Pablo in Veraguas, Panama as it empties into the Gulf of Montijo. And it's a wetlands area, supports local fishery, provides habitat for many mammals and reptiles, as well as several species of nesting and wintering water birds. 
Now, that first light image was captured February 16th of 2013, and their mission with this device is to gain experience and expertise in automated data acquisition from the space station. Like I said, it's controlled from the ground. They can, uh, they can have a, a target that they want to take a look at, and they can capture multiple images at the rate of 3 to 7 frames per second. They can get as many as 100 images per pass. So it, it, the, this is fascinating to me in that it knows where it is in space. It knows its orientation to the ground, and I think it's phenomenal. This is a, like I said, it's a Pathfinder device. This is going to prove a concept that if it proves and gives them some of the imagery and capability that they're hoping for, there could be some more advanced devices that will be placed outside the station. This is on the inside, but there'll be future devices that could go outside and could get some real uh, high-value imagery uh, in time of disaster and just for uh, special purpose imagery that people would request. I think it's pretty neat. I serve. Yeah, Mark, I kind of wish we had this uh, back um, uh, on October 29th of last year when uh, when Hurricane Sandy came ashore. It might have helped us out here in the uh, New York, uh, New Jersey area uh, kind of sort of sort out some things and, and so on. As it was, we were still getting uh, good uh, satellite imagery from uh, from NASA as far as the uh, you know the, the shoreline areas that got uh, you know most heavily impacted by uh, by Hurricane Sandy, but this little device here too may have also uh, kind of sort of helped us out here, and uh, hopefully we won't have a chance to find out how well it would perform in another natural disaster around here. But uh, it's nice to know that something like that is up there. Uh, a, a really good, helpful eye on the sky, and it's on board the International Space Station right now, trying to help, uh, trying to help not only just developing nations, but uh, but uh, everybody included. And uh, and uh, if you'll excuse the pun um, and the the Star Trek uh, reference here, uh, because of the uh, the uh, window observational. Uh, research facility over at uh, NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, or WARF as it call, as it's called, uh, <laughs> yeah. to uh, to a server and to uh, to the uh, to the whole project complete. Oh, and just for uh, credit on the story, I uh, I found this on one of the uh, newsletters that's published by NASA. This was out of the Marshall Star from the Marshall Space Flight Center. Thanks, folks at Marshall. All right. And with that, we have actually now reached the end of our first trip around the table, whether it seems like it or not. And we are just about ready to begin our second trip. And this one, we're going to go to another story that we've been talking about. And that is CRS-2, which was SpaceX's second resupply mission to the International Space Station. We talked about that after it had launched on March 1st, 2013, and was then grappled two days later. It was slightly later than expected, but two days later nonetheless, March 3rd. And then, as expected, it departed, and that was on March 26th, and successfully landed in the Pacific Ocean as planned, just after 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and was then recovered, 
and it appears that unlike last time, everything worked this time, including the Glacier Freezer, and way to go, Dragon, and way to go, SpaceX. Yeah, so uh, there was a, a press conference or a post-landing press conference uh, on March 28th, uh, which uh, I kind of sort of was a fly on the wall uh, on. Um, it, uh, Gwyn Shotwell was saying that about uh, 3,256 pounds of cargo was brought back, about 200 pounds more than expected. Uh, it uh, also, Dragon also was... Uh, carrying up some grapple bars uh, and so on to uh, continue ISS upgrade and upgrades and, uh, and sustainability. Um, and uh, this was, I believe, the, the, this was the third mission that uh, Dragon has, has completed and come back, back from. Uh, I believe NASA took, uh, took possession of the cargo that evening on uh, March 27th. And reported again, sir, as you mentioned, that there were no no problems uh, with the cargo itself. So, whatever leaks had happened before on CRS one, that all all of that was repaired, and I'm sure folks were pleased about that. Uh, Elon Musk was a member of the uh, of the panel on this particular uh, the press conference, and he did go into uh, some detail on um, what exactly happened just after launch. If folks kind of recall, there was a little bit of a cliffhanger where uh, uh, three of uh, the Dragon's four uh, pods just kind of sort of went out. Uh, these maneuvering pods are necessary to uh, essentially maneuver the spacecraft, and uh, you have to have at least three functional in order to pr approach the ISS. In this case, um, about three of those pods just kind of went offline and he wanted to the, the the reasons as to why the thing occurred and apparently what had occurred is there was a small check valve uh on on this particular uh dragon vehicle uh with a slight design change and according to what musk was saying that design change was so slight that um since it was a telecon he would actually really need to show us with a graphic as far as the the subtlety of this particular design change, well, apparently what uh, there was an issue with this particular check valve uh, that the vendor didn't catch, and it was installed on CRS two, and SpaceX unfortunately didn't 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 catch the problem either, and lo and behold, we had this problem. Um, some software had to be written on the fly. Uh, at uh, the uh, at uh, the SpaceX uh, control center in Hawthorne and sent up to the Dragon to go ahead and essentially burp this check valve in order for it to relieve pressure behind it. And once that sort of started going, and uh, you know that 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 process started moving, the the it became clearer that that indeed was the problem, and those those pods were coming back online. Uh, as if you recall, uh, the, the vehicle was launched on a Friday. They spent Saturday, that Saturday, basically checking the vehicle over, and uh, they were clear for docking on Sunday. Um, Musk really did thank the, the U.S. Air Force as well for allowing uh, them to maintain communications with Dragon and uh, also made an observation that uh, NASA was being an extraordinarily cool customer, and he he said that with all envy because he, he said that uh, 
the, you know, we were sort of biting our nails. I mean, in the SpaceX team, we didn't, we were really trying to solve this problem. We were, we were extraordinary, you know, biting our nails down to the nub, so to speak. But uh, uh, the NASA folks, they were, they were calm and cool and collected and, and basically said, hey, it's your vehicle. You know what you're doing. You, you, you've designed it. We're, if, unless you need help, we're here. But uh, we're going to let you, uh, we're going to let you, you know, fix your, you fix your vehicle. And uh, and they had all all trust in in uh, in SpaceX and that 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 reference too. So uh, again, uh, uh, Musk gave his uh, his tip of the hat to NASA and to uh, the U.S. Air Force for for assisting them with uh, with communication. Um, uh, Julie Robinson, who is the uh, Sp- International Space Station program manager, also spoke about the cargo that that Dragon was bringing back. There were about 300 tubes of, uh, of blood samples coming back uh, in an effort to understand uh, and wrap your head around uh, osteoporosis uh, and try to f- understand how that uh, is affected uh, by our, you know, how that affects uh, our astronauts. As you know, they're there is some sort of bone loss mechanism going on in our astronauts as there are uh, up there in space. And we can understand that mechanism and try to prevent that. Then, well, maybe we can lead to a, uh, a cure for osteoporosis here back, back here on earth. Uh, she also uh, highlighted some of the plant growth experiments, uh, trying to understand how to grow crops in microgravity environments and also with implications on how to grow better crops here back here on Earth. So those were just a handful of the experiments that she, that, uh, she profiled during the, uh, the press conference. Uh, they did, um, uh, Charlie Bolden, when he was speaking, did mention that uh, um, orbital sciences and their Cygnus uh, spacecraft are up to bat next. Uh, sorry, we do have a launch date or a projected launch date for Cygnus, correct? I believe we were thinking uh, offline. Think... Go ahead. Exactly right. Um, as you might remember, there were two players in the COTS program, the commercial program where NASA's like, hey, we'll give you funding and give you checkpoints and things to help you get stuff going back and forth to the International Space Station. And Orbital, the other company, has their Antar- has their Antares rocket, which is scheduled to launch, as of right now, as early as... Eight, as early as April 16th, and that would be an approximate 3 p.m. Eastern launch time, and that would be from Pad 0A at the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport, which is on Wallops Island, Virginia. And that is the Antares uh, spacecraft, which will eventually have the Cygnus capsule on board. And here's the big difference, though. As we talked about with CRS-2, it has that glacier freezer, which can help bring back stuff from the space station or have down mass capability as it's called this one does not but still it's going to be interesting to see this one go and i'm honestly looking forward to seeing this one launch and then they're saying that if all goes well they're expecting their first demo flight their actual flight kind of like spacex did to the space station around there in july so yeah exactly so uh, cygnus is, is coming up to bat as well and again this this gives us at least uh, another alternative to uh, go ahead and get cargo up to the International Space Station. Um, Musk, Elon Musk went ahead and uh, also discussed the next version of uh, Falcon 9, which I believe is uh, scheduled for its premiere on, uh, on the CRS-3 mission later this fall. Um, 
it will improve performance and reliability. I think Musk had mentioned that it's a, quote, a meaningful upgrade, close quote. He, he quotes maybe about 60 to 70 percent more capability uh, than the current Falcon 9 has. Um, also, there is more, re- more redundancy and more safety built into this particular vehicle. Um, the idea, too, is to, you know, make sure that you can still complete ascent and, uh, you know, uh, in the event if one or two engines go out. I believe he did mention that uh, this particular vehicle is still designed so that if one engine does cut out, the uh, the vehicle still can complete ascent and still complete its mission. Uh, one of the uh, interesting things that Charlie Bolden was asked uh, was, again, that uh, that particular S word again, uh, which is sequestration. It kind of crept into the uh, into the conference a little bit. And uh, Charlie Bolden said that we don't that quote we don't see an impact for fiscal year 2013. So essentially, uh, this, the the uh, the COTS program uh, that includes the commercial crew program and so on is good to go for this year. However, if sequestration continues, and he stressed that that this was not supposed to happen, and and um, that sequestration is actually a 10-year plan going out. So if if the sequestration is allowed to continue, it will continue to cut away at uh, at funding, and indeed it might put the uh, the rest of the CCI cap in in jeopardy as far as uh, as far as getting uh, uh, U.S. citizens uh, to its own space station from U.S. soil in by 2017, uh, there will probably be a delay in that if, if sequestration continues, and he did stress that. Um, but barring any budgetary concerns right now, uh, they, NASA, it feels that they are on target. They are quite pleased with the progress of all three of the, uh, the CCI cap participants at this point, which is Sierra Nevada Corporation, Boeing with the CST-100, Sierra Nevada with the um, uh, aircraft like uh, Dream Chaser, which is essentially NASA's HL-20, um, and of course uh, SpaceX's Dragon. Those were the three three key participants in this. Um, Gwen Shotwell uh, ended the conference basically thanking uh, her own team over at SpaceX for a job well done uh, for NASA's uh, continued uh, support. Um, also uh, thanked the U.S. Air Force for their support. And Mark, you should be pleased to hear this. She also thanked the FAA because they apparently had a, had a hand in the success of CRS-2. Um, also talked to the FCC and also thanked us here in, in the press and in the public for uh, for their for our continued support of their efforts. So uh, again, it was a rather interesting uh, press conference. There's one other thing I did did neglect to leave in there that um, there is a new version of Dragon coming out, and I believe that is going to be it's going to take its bow during the pad abort test, which is supposed to occur sometime next year. Um, the new version of Dragon, um, or I'm sorry, this year it might be. I'm, I'm, I'm getting my dates mixed up. I'll have to go back and check that. But um, anyway, the new version of Dragon, uh, as Musk kind of put it, 
is uh, kind of sort of like looking like an alien spacecraft. Apparently, it has some larger engine pods. It will have landing gear to support a propulsive landing. Um, and uh, it will, of course, have windows and so on because this is sort of the redress for um, the, uh, the the piloted version of Dragon. Um, again, they, they're hoping for a propulsive landing or what I'm calling an RTLS, you know, using an old shuttle acronym or a return to launch site uh, landing for Dragon in the not-too-distant future. Uh, they're talking about possibly testing that as early as next year. Um, I'm a little bit on the fence when I hear that because we're dealing with tech, you know, the unproven technologies and, and everybody in, in this audience kind of knows how that goes. But um, we'll see if they're going to be on target for that. Uh, and uh, I'm just hoping that uh, that all goes well. Uh, this uh, Musk actually, and this didn't get a lot of airplay in the press, uh, Musk actually said during the press conference that in the beginning, you know, when we were first, when they were first starting out Dragon, they really didn't know what they were doing. So they opted for, um, for the water landing for Dragon at that point in time. However, as they got a little smarter and a little better at things, they figured, hey, let's, you know, let's, let's try this propulsive landing type thing. Let's see what happens. And uh, they said, yeah, okay, let's see if this actually works. So, uh, and the idea too is to, you know, the, the if you splash down to, you know, everybody knows what, what happens there. Occasionally you get water seepage in the vehicle and you can't, you know, because of that water damage, you may not be able to, to reuse the vehicle again. The idea is to tr- make Dragon, you know, reusable. And, uh, and so that's what this propulsive landing hopes to hopes to accomplish. So, again, hats off to uh, to SpaceX for a job well done on CRS two. We'll be looking forward to CRS three in the fall, and looking forward to seeing further progress and getting uh, American citizens back into space from American soil. Godspeed to you guys. Indeed, looking forward to the CCI cab, the commercial crew crew, the commercial crew program stuff coming up as well. Looking forward and hoping for success for Orbital with their launch, which, again, the window is they're figuring between April 16th and April 18th of this year. So a lot of good stuff coming up for future. And a lot of good stuff coming up in commercial spaceflight, which apparently, Mark, some commercial companies, some commercial spaceflight companies have been around a little longer than we thought. Yeah, would you believe SpaceX has put a uh, video out on YouTube, it's on the SpaceX channel, and it's titled The First 11 Years, and it's a fast-paced, 1 minute, 27 second video that shows a lot of behind the scenes, you know, some quick shots and assembly of their their rockets, uh, some shots in the warehouse, control room, the... Uh, employees cheering at this one of the successful launches that we've seen and uh, it's fun video take a look at it and it's kind of something to be proud of you know they've had some rough spots along the way where everybody kind of held their breath and nail-biting moments like you were talking about a few minutes ago but uh, you know minute 27 second video summarizing 11 years and one of the top comments that I see here Somebody said, imagine what the first 22 years will look like when they've done another 11 years of hard work and development. And uh, they are innovators. So 
I'm looking forward to it. Yes, indeed, the commercial space flight sector has gotten a little more full since 11 years ago with all these other ones coming in with Virgin and Orbital and SpaceX as well. And, oh, God, the list just goes on and on. There's a lot. But still, it's interesting to see. And uh, thank you for sharing that. And as always, a link will be in the show notes to that video. Alrighty then, so that has brought us to the end of round two, and we are now on to our final trip around the table, and this next story will take us into darkness. Gene? Yeah, sorry, thanks. This is actually from a, a trade associ- association type company uh, called the uh, Aerospace Industry as- Association. Uh, they're trying to raise uh, about uh, $33,000 to have a 30-second edit of a NASA video called We Are the Explorers, which is about really about 2 minutes and 38 seconds long. Um, now, if you've, you've been to the NASA website or if you've been watching NASA television for any prolonged period of time, uh, you've already seen the, large, the longer edit of this thing. It's essentially taking you know, where we've been in human spaceflight and then where we're, where we're hoping to go. Uh, well, they're trying to crowdsource this, and um, the whole point is to try to get this particular video on um, during uh, the opening weekend of Star Trek's Into Darkness, the, the, the second uh, uh, film in the rebooted Star Trek series. Um, it will be in, if all goes well, uh, it will be in 50 theaters throughout the country. And uh, if anybody's interested, they can go ahead and uh, visit the site Indiegogo. And uh, go ahead, and if you, you're interested, going ahead and donating uh, to this effort. And they're trying to raise $33,000 for this. When I, now... Uh, when I first heard this, my, my knee-jerk reaction was, okay, this sounds kind of cool. A, uh, a PSA, finally, in a movie theater of no less. Uh, and if you've been to, to movie theaters lately, you know what kind of sort of tripe they throw up there on the screen uh, to, uh, you know, as, as they're preparing it, uh, you know, as you're waiting to see the movie, it's always some you know, commercial that you can watch on television or something like that. And having this on there is like, well, you know, hey, finally, we, we've got a seat at the table. And it, this is a, a pretty good outreach mechanism. But then I thought, okay, <clears throat> this is going into the second Star Trek film during opening weekend. Now, that demographic, in all honesty already kind of sort of supports NASA or they're aware of NASA programs or they're, they kind of understand where NASA's coming from. And, and for the most part, a lot of that audience may already support these programs. They may already be aware of the Orion. They already may be aware of the space launch system. They may already be aware of, of the commercial crew program. Um, so in, 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 in retrospect, I think we're kind of sort of preaching to the choir here, putting this into uh, Star Trek's Into Darkness. I think what we should be doing, yes, put it into a film for sure, definitely. 
but this might be the wrong one to do it. And I kind of talked to somebody offline a little bit about this, and um, they saw a uh, a tweet that I posted out on Twitter about this. I believe I put the the uh, um, the io9 article attached to it. And I just said, yeah, I'm kind of sort of on the fence on this one. And this individual DM'd me and said, yeah, I'm kind of sort of on the fence on this one too, but I want to hear hear why. And I, I just explained to you there, and I just said, what, where would you like to see this? And they thought, you know, maybe at a Pixar film where the kids would see it and the parents would see it and the parents wouldn't, you know, this is a, an audience that – you know, obviously you're going to appear, you know, you're going to appeal to a STEM audience, but you're also going to appeal to the parents of that STEM audience. And those are the parents that essentially write the check for all of this. So, again, and their understanding of what's going on and what bang they're getting for their buck when they when they go ahead and, and pay their taxes and when they are their 05 percent or less than 0.5 percent that they give to NASA um, where does it go? And uh, this this video would would give them at least an understanding of that, or possibly another blockbuster this summer that doesn't necessarily appeal, you know, may not or may not appeal to that audience. I think us in the space business, we we kind of preach to the choir a lot, and that's something we've really really got to stop doing if we're going to go ahead and try to expand people's understanding of what's going on and what they're getting for their dollar as far as space programs are concerned. Um, I think putting this, as I said, into, in, in, into the, uh, into darkness, uh, movie is, is again, preaching to the choir. And, and that's something again, that we really, really have to stop doing as far as, you know, space activism is concerned. So I'll throw this out to the floor and, and, and get your opinions on it. I'm honestly somewhere in between. I'm not really sure. I mean, obviously it's a great idea to put it out in a movie theater and to get it to a wider audience. But then again, I bet you that maybe 25%, if not less, of that audience will have ever watched NASA TV at all. You know, just because they're Trekkies doesn't mean they're fans of the space program. I know plenty of people who are saying, oh, Star Trek is awesome, Star Trek is great, you know, things like that, where all these sci-fi fantasy things are great. They're like, but that would never happen in real life because our space program is terrible or it doesn't get enough funding. And, you know, I, I don't think they're preaching entirely to the wrong choir. I mean, obviously, a Pixar movie is going to be a completely different audience. But I don't think that it's a bad person that it's a bad group to preach to. Yeah, again, sir, I, uh, I'm a, I was on the fence there, but I'm, I, I'm sort of thinking that um, most of the, the – if you look at, at, at most of the, the folks over at uh, – in, in, in the seats over at Mission Control A, you know, I mean I, I, can, I can count on, on you know, both hands uh, how many people were inspired by Star Trek to get into the space business. So, um, you know, again, that's that that was my impetus for saying that I think we're preaching to the choir here. Um, agreed, you know, you, but you, you've got an audience that at least has some sort of understanding and some sort of feeling that, yeah, we know that space is our future. 
but um, and if they're already saying that that uh, that NASA is is underfunded and and all this other stuff and and our program basically you know sucks on on rye toast, then you're not going to reach them anyhow. So I'm I'm still of of the opinion that that maybe we are kind of sort of indirectly here preaching to the choir. And maybe, again, another venue should be looked at for, um, for, for this. That's, again, just my thoughts. Well, they could always come up with something for a Super Bowl commercial if they could afford it. Oh, that would be, oh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, uh, Mark, if I ever hit the lottery. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, you got to admit that raises the bar considerably for funding. And uh, if you think about it, I'd rather see it, you know, where it's going to be uh, targeted than to have it in front of a a horror movie or some kind of a mushy romance or something where the audience would have zero or less than zero interest in this alternate material that you're popping up there before their flick starts. Yeah, but, you know, half the stuff that, that they show at these things, as far as commercials are concerned, I have very little interest in anyway. I kind of tone it out. I throw on the iPod or something and just kind of tone it out if I'm, if I'm watching <laughs> the movies. But uh, yeah. there's also another PSA out there that not a lot of people knew, and I, I posted it out on Twitter. It's, it's an older one uh, that comes from the Constellation days, but it doesn't mention Constellation at all. It just rem- mentions the Exploration Office, and that's it. it, it's, called, it it's called Reach. It's out there on, on YouTube, and it essentially just portrays a small child uh, reaching for a, uh, a basically one of these little pillow versions of the planet Mars and um trying to trying to grab at it and uh it 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 kind of just sort of says this is what we're trying to do this is what where we're trying to go and i thought too that that would also work for a for a stem audience at least um or at least for a pixar film so if somebody is so inclined they can go ahead and look that up on youtube just do nasa reach commercial and, and you'll find it but uh um again i thought it was a lot more you know had a lot more impact uh, to it, then uh, it was a lot more subtle and had a lot more impact than 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 what they're planning. Whatever way you're looking at it, I'm still going to be angry that I finished almost all my popcorn during those previews. So we'll see if it makes it into theaters and if it has any impact. If it does, so thanks for bringing that up. All right, so now we are going to move on to Mark, who has an interesting story that's sure to thrust us in a different direction. Who'd have thought? that there was any such thing as a piston-pump-powered rocket engine. Well, somebody at X-Core Aerospace out of Mojave, California, on March 26th, uh, well, they came up with the idea, obviously, well in advance of that, but they announced the first in aviation space history. It was the firing of a full piston-pump-powered rocket engine. And this is a breakthrough because it kind of sets the foundation for a fully reusable spacecraft it can fly multiple times per day, every day. It doesn't have the complexity and the stress that goes on with these high-pressure turbopump-type engines. It enables their, it'll enable their, with its further development, it'll enable their propulsion system to fly multiple times per day and last for tens of thousands of flights. Of course, we've heard claims before as to how great and how wonderful things are. 
But, you know, this is a step, and it's a significant step, towards a reduction in the cost per flight, shortening the turnaround time, and increasing overall safety. So they had a 68-second, excuse me, 67-second engine run, and it worked. This is the culmination of a 12-year program to develop this unique technology. The kerosene piston pump has been successfully flight-proven during their 40-flight test program on the X-Racer aircraft. They'll be entering another flight test program soon with Lynx, and the pumps and engines will power X-Core and industry to the next level. This is from a press release from X-Core. But uh, sounds exciting. It's interesting. I wish I knew more about this hardware and could understand it better, but I kind of have to take it at face value. When they say this is a first in aviation and space history, it's a first. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about it as time goes on. It's also from XCOR. These are the folks that I believe are also the uh, 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 company that is going to um, carry the uh, the X uh, winner to uh, to uh, into a suborbital flight. If I'm not mistaken, there, uh, Mark, am I, Mark, correct? They, uh, I believe, from that uh, that uh, uh, men's deodorant. Folks, these are the guys that are based that have been selected to carry the winner uh, up into uh, up up into space. Correct, I think. If I can chime in, if you don't mind, yes, yes, it is the that's the Axe Apollo, which is the Axe slash Lynx Corporation, depending on where you are. Yep. So um, this is critical news for the folks entered in that contest. That uh, because of this engine test going very very well. Uh, there, the odds of actually this actually happening um, may have gone up significantly. But uh, indeed, Mark, this is a, an engineering uh, an engineering first, and uh, it it kind of sort of reminds me a little bit of another engineering first that we talked about here on this program not too long ago, uh, with some folks over the over the pond, so to speak. And I hate that term, but I'll invoke it anyway. Um, uh, folks are from Reaction Engines, but uh, those that uh, that particular breakthrough was indeed a breakthrough, and uh, I'm, I'm, we're going to have to go ahead and follow up with those guys to to see how uh, how they're doing. But uh, indeed, this is this is a big deal, and uh, it once more opens another pathway uh, to space and getting uh, getting folks uh, up to uh, at least up up to a suborbital point. So um, again, I'm 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 hoping X Core. I'm wishing them all all the best, and and uh, hopefully we'll see them flying out of uh, out of the uh, the Kennedy Space Center soon. Yes, indeed, and all the best to X Core in their future rocket endeavors. All right, now I guess it comes to me this time, which is weird. I normally don't wrap things up, but I'll take the final couple stories here. And this is one that, Gene, you pointed out to me actually from the Washington Post. And this involves our good friend Robonaut 2, located on board the International Space Station, who is up there and is being tested to eventually work on helping out the astronauts up there. And now this is an interesting competition that they're launching and this is the nasa tournament lab in cooperation with the open innovation platformer top coder you know what they're basically saying is they're calling people to come up with a way to enable robonaut to identify buttons and switches on a console fitted with led lights so basically they're gonna have to find an algorithm that will work with the cameras on robonaut in different lighting conditions and the winner of that will win ten thousand dollars 
And then the second phase after that one will be another competition which will call on the competitors to write an algorithm that controls the motions based on this new site capability. So I think this is an interesting competition, a great way to get people involved, and honestly a cheap way to improve the use of Romanaut. Yeah, it's also a, a, a good way of, of trying to promote innovation. It seems to me that uh, uh, NASA has sort of adopted the idea of, uh, of a contest and the idea of competition in some very subtle ways, but they've also in, opened up the door just as much as they have with, with CCI CAB. Uh, they opened up the door to, to competition there as well. So um, it's it's a it's a brand new world, so to speak, as far as uh, as far as space flight's concerned. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, this this is something to watch. This is going to be something to really really uh, try to see what, what we can do and uh, sink sink our teeth into here, as far as um, as far as Robonaut two and its capabilities. Uh, we haven't heard much from Robonaut two of late. I know uh, he's up there on the ISS, and uh, uh, they're they're shaking them out and uh, getting the bugs out, out of them and, and making sure that uh, he could be a good, uh, good uh, viable crew member. Um, if these uh, uh, things kind of sort of work with as far as the eyesight uh, possibilities and, um, of course, then with phase two uh, going to the arm, arm movements with linking all of this together, this is going to also enable Robonaut to possibly uh, uh, do some other things, not just um, on ISS maintenance. Um, I will go ahead and reference a project uh, called Project M that was uh, proposed a while back ago. It was essentially sending Robonaut, a version of Robonaut with a torso and legs and so on to the moon uh, to do some geology up there. And... Uh, and if that was were to work, uh, the possibilities are endless as far as where you might be able to go ahead and send this particular machine. Uh, we may be able to see it on Mars at some point, doing some some uh, some uh, geology that perhaps you don't want to send a human being into. Uh, it may be the first uh, human engineering, uh, you know, visitor, if you will, on one of the you know, further off moons. I mean, I'd, I would love to see this thing on, on, on Titan, perhaps, uh, looking around and, and doing some work. So this really, you know, it, it, it may sound trivial in, in the long run, um, in the short run here, I'm sorry, but in the long run, it is going to have such an impact on exploration. So the lucky winners, uh, whoever they may be, will have far-reaching impact on space exploration in the future. So I wish anybody that enters this all the best, good luck, because you are really, honest to God, going to be making a grand comp contribution to, uh, to, to the space program going forward. So good luck to you. Yes, indeed. Here's to innovation. And I should throw in one more, I guess it's a competition to end things, because I said I wasn't going to fool you guys, but I have to throw in one April Fool's Day story, because that is today's recording date, April 1st, 2013. And I gotta give a tip of the hat to NASA and the astronomy picture of the day, affectionately known as APOD, to those who check it regularly. Well, here's this one. It has a picture of two items. 
And here's the explanation of it. Which is which? Of the two images, one is a moon in our solar system, while the other is the bottom of a frying pan. We're not making this up. Can you tell a pan from a planetoid? Think you got it? Then it has a link to the answer. Continues on. Okay, but there are more. That's right. You, your family, friends, neighbors, and local elected officials can all play moon or frying pan. As everyone knows, the fundamental underlying reason why moons and frying pans appear similar is... Okay, we had Apod aren't sure either. And if you've been fooled, don't fret. Just remember that it's okay, because today is April Fool's Day. And I will link to the entire quiz of moon or frying pan in the show notes, which... My guess is, if you've ever looked through a telescope, you should be able to figure this out. Yeah, sorry, there was another one, too, on the NASA website, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, it was called uh, Mooning Mercury, and uh, NASA had declared that, quote, uh, this discovery of an image provides the first evidence that Mercury has a small natural satellite or moon, uh, visible as, as a bright spot in an image taken yesterday by the Mercury Dual Imaging System wide-angle ca- wide camera, um, which I don't think actually exists on Messenger, but I'm, I'll have to look at that. Um, the, uh, it actually gives a name for the moon. Um, I won't attempt to pronounce it here, but uh, if, if you go ahead and, and do a search on the NASA website, it's there. They say that the, the, the data that was acquired here was actually acquired on, on March 31st of last year. So this was an a April Fool's joke, obviously, from last year. But I posted it anyway because it, it looked really cool. It, it essentially contains a, uh, 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 an image of, a, of an asteroid that was taken a while back, while back in a small little dot. But it's, it's funny. You mean the MDISWAC camera? <laughs> the Mercury Dual Imaging System Wide Angle Camera MDISWAC? Yes. <laughs> uh, it's just all of the names on this are so ridiculous. And Caduceus is the name of the moon. I think that's how it's pronounced. Yes, exactly. So, um, yeah, NASA got you last year and they got you again this year. Well, that is, if you can't tell the difference between a moon and a frying pan, they got you this year. So anyway, happy April Fool's Day to everybody. And on that silly note, that brings us to the end of this episode. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. And the voice just is about to give out, so we made it. <laughs> thank you, Sawyer. This has been fun. Perfect timing. And thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. All right. Well, see you next month. Oh, I'm sorry. Just kidding. See you next time. We hope that you will join us again next time, and as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.